Hello, everybody. My name is Tiffany Bobo. Welcome to What's Next Live with my friend, Josh Linkner. Josh, welcome to the show today. I'm so glad to have you. Tiffany, such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, I could go on and on about my intro to Josh, but I'm just going to tell you a little story. It was probably eight or nine years ago. We were speaking at an event in Las Vegas together, uh, and Josh came up to talk about innovation and came out with his guitar, <laughs> brought out some other bandmates, and they started riffing and jamming on some jazz to tell the story of innovation. If that gives you any indication of what a cool guy Josh is, I don't know what will. But he's got a new book that is launching tomorrow called Big Little Breakthroughs. He's got four other books that are fantastic. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's an entrepreneur who sold five businesses, I think, four or five. Uh, he's got an innovation lab. He's a Detroit guy. He's got kids. And he loves greasy pizza. Outside of that, that's all you need to know about Josh. So, Josh, welcome. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And are, do you, are you a pizza fan, by the way? Now I have to ask. Well, it's so strange that you would ask that question because uh, yesterday I tweeted something out that Yahoo Finance said that the number one snack in the West is pizza. And I said, I'm not sure if uh, pizza is the number one snack in Hawaii, but that's what they say. So I'll go with, I guess it's the number one snack in the West. I like pizza, you know, but uh, uh, I like it cold in the morning out of the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I, I like like hot, warm, thick, thin, you name it. I just, I don't know. I'm sure like many people just obsessed. It's portable. You can drive with one hand and, you know, I mean, it's just a great food. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's dig in. Now, I always start with something called bullish and bearish, so I can't let you off the hook. I know you're a second time guest. Uh, you were one of my very first with What's Next. I guess it's been almost a hundred shows ago, so uh, it's great to have you back, but you know the drill. So bullish or bearish, bullish or for it bearish you're against it are you ready sure all right robots creating a jazz album uh i'm bearish on that i'm bullish on the technical aspects i think they could process a bunch of previous ideas and bring them together in a in a, in a technical way but jazz in addition to technical complexity has a real element of soul and i think that it would be kind of missing something if it wasn't there wasn't that human element a little bit of a even sometimes a little bit of a mistake or two makes makes the music better and i think it would be almost too perfect if it was a robot jazz band all right fair enough well maybe it's just one instrument will be the robot the rest will be human maybe that's the way to to get a little blend in there uh, and try something different all right the next one uh, entrepreneurship is a calling bullish or bearish um, I'm bullish on that. I do think it's a calling. And my only slight pause there is I don't think it's a calling for a select few. I think it can be a calling for all of us. And, and entrepreneurship is a big word. It can mean different things. It doesn't mean, in my opinion, that you have to be wearing a hoodie and starting a tech company in your garage. I think we can be entrepreneurs of our lives, of our families, of our health, and the sense of creating something out of nothing, of, of using your creativity to, to lean into possibility, of taking responsible risks. I don't think that's relegated to a select few. So in that respect, I'm, I'm, bearish that it's, I'm bullish that it's a calling, but I do believe it's a wider calling than most people think. All right. Fair enough. And, you know, I, I, uh, I had a really heart to heart conversation with a friend of mine who's a, a shark in Australia on Shark Tank Australia. And we were talking about entrepreneurship. And I said, I just don't feel like I am one, you know, like that it was not my calling. So that's why I always ask that question, because I feel like pe all people can become an entrepreneur. But do you really have this like calling pull that that you really don't 
ever maybe want to work for someone else. You just want to work for yourself. So I just thought I'd get your opinion because I know that you advise so many entrepreneurs. Yeah, All right. just, I look at you. It's so funny you say that because I think of you as wildly entrepreneurial. You're like this incredible, brilliant, creative force. You've written this amazing book. You're, you're a change agent. And like all those things are entrepreneurial. So I don't know that one has to physically, you know, register an LLC to be an entrepreneur. I, I, I would say that you are quite the entrepreneur, my friend. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it because, you know, I, I, I sometimes question myself. All right. The third one, which I've kind of already alluded to, uh, greasy pizza, bullish or bearish. That was sort of, this is a given. I'm bullish all in on pizza. I mean, by the way, you know, there's a lot of debate. I like all styles, Neapolitan and such, but Detroit style pizza is having this big renaissance, you know, national chains are selling it. It's about half as thick as a Chicago deep dish. Cheese goes all the way to the edge and it's a square pizza, but it's just the bomb. You got to check out Detroit pizza. Well, we you know next time I get on an airplane and I come to Detroit, I'm going to take you up on a pizza date, right? Some good, you know, Game pizza, on. cold beer. We will catch up properly. Perfect. I'm in. All right. So let's get started. You know, this conversation about innovation, um, I just love. And um, there's 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 always this great debate, I think, when I start talking about innovation. But I would love for you to help define what innovation means to you, uh, especially when talking uh, about big little breakthroughs. Yeah, the first thing I think we need to do is bust the myth that innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea or it only counts if it changes the world. When, when you have a billion dollar idea, that certainly is innovative, but that's not the only flavor of innovation. The way I think or, or define innovation to answer your question is it's a, applied creativity where there's an element of utility. In other words, it, it's great, creative, but it actually you know has some in, you know inherent value. That being said, I think there's three flavors. And, and, and if you think about innovation in all caps, the word innovation, all caps, that's the big stuff. That's, you know, the movable type or penicillin or the internet. And those types of innovations obviously are innovative, but they're far few and far between and, and inaccessible to most of us. The next one, double click once, then just think about the capital letter I and the rest lowercase. Those are innovations that any one of us might have two or three or four a year. They could be some new idea to boost your sales by a meaningful amount or, or reduce safety or improve safety outcomes in a factory. And these might not make the cover of a magazine. They might not write documentaries about you, but they're all, they're meaty and they, 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 they derive meaningful outcomes. They are within the grasp of most of us. But one last double click there, think about the word innovation in all lowercase. And that's my favorite because those are the big little breakthroughs, the, the micro innovations that definitely don't change the world individually. But I think it's a much more pragmatic approach because it's far less risky. It's far more within the grasp of a wider group of people. And we, we want to get big breakthroughs. The best way to cultivate the skill actually is by developing them one little breakthrough at a time. And furthermore, those little ones add up to juicy stuff. So to me, it's a much more sort of pragmatic approach, again, to cultivating human creativity for uh, useful gain. Well, so, you know, why do you think people, because I like the big eye, little eye, right? Small letter. And I think that that makes people feel it could be a little bit digestible. But I also hear that it it's getting harder, right? It's getting harder to innovate maybe even at the pace. And so if that's the definition of innovation, you know, why do you think it's getting harder? And are there different levels based on the way you just defined it? Yeah, I don't think getting uh, being more creative and becoming more innovative in as a human being is getting harder at all. I think if anything, you know, this book and, and others like it um, are providing a really systematic approach to cultivate those ideas and put them into action. Again, I think it really gets back to how are we defining innovation? If the baseline measure is, you know, is it five billion dollars? Yeah, that's getting harder. But if the baseline measure is, can you can you figure out a smarter way for your commute? 
Or is there a, a better way to interact with your kids when teaching them to read? Again, innovation shouldn't be outside of the grasp of us. It should be inclusive. It's not an exclusive club for, for billionaire hoodie donning lab coat people. It's like all of us can be innovative. And so in that context, I think it's actually getting easier because there's more access to information. There's more access to knowledge. And I think we can all find ways to deploy innovation in our daily lives. What do you think people get wrong in that in that scenario? So if it it's maybe it's not getting harder individually, right? But maybe it's harder just at a pure pace, you know, like I'll give this example. I hear many, you know, customers, clients, large and small will say, we're really trying to become more innovative. And either culturally, they're not able to sort of turn the corner, right? They're just, they don't have the culture set up to uh, create an environment where people feel they can innovate, or if they fail, that they're not going to lose their job kind of innovation. You know, are they swinging for too big of the fence, right? Where they're trying to say, I want a billion dollar idea, kind of where you started this versus kind of incremental innovation. You know, what are people getting wrong, but also what are people getting right? Yeah, there are a number of myths and barriers. You brought up several. I mean, one is that they think it's got to be huge. So that by definition is risky. Another one is they think creativity and innovation only applies to certain roles. Like if you're in marketing or in R&D, you should be innovative. But in, if you're in legal or finance, you should not be, which again is false. We should we can all be creative. I'm not saying, saying we should break the law, but we all can be creative in, in thoughtful, responsible ways. Uh, another big issue is that people say they don't have enough. I, I hear this all the time. Maybe you hear this too, Tiffany. I would love to be more innovative, but, and you're like, wait for it, wait for it. I, I don't have enough. And then there's a fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough resources, whatever. I always like to tease back that if the amount of creativity that you had equals the amount of external resources at, at your disposal, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and startups would be the least. And of course, we know the exact opposite is true. So I think that we can, we, and, and the other thing I think people get wrong is that, that creativity isn't an, an innate thing, like, like a talent, as if one out of a thousand of us are anointed that way at birth and the rest of us have to suffer. And when we get past the mythology of it, creativity and innovation is not sitting around waiting for a lightning bolt from the heavens and then launching with perfection. It's a skill that can be built and developed. So think about how we use rigorous approaches and systems in every other area of business. Yet creativity, we're like, oh, that's wizardry. Let's just take a pragmatic approach. So in the book, I dissect what's the anatomy of an idea. How can you build rituals and rewards in an organization to cultivate the desired outcomes? What are the techniques, the technologies that you can do to bring ideas to the surface? And so when you when you approach it as a discipline instead of a uh, an act of wizardry, it actually is much more easily within our grasp. And and some organizations and people do just that. Those are the ones that are wildly successful these days. And those that don't, I really worry because in the context of, of soon to be post COVID. COVID, I feel like the world has hit a giant reset button and the patterns of the past have been broken. The way we interact, the way we sell, the way we lead, the way we love, the way we eat. And so we point being, we can no longer just rely on the models of the past and expect the same result. So if there's ever a time to, to lean into our inventive thinking and creative problem solving, this is it. Well, I love the sort of anatomy of an idea. Would you mind unpacking that? Because I think that's what a great little, so those couple of words are so powerful. So what's what's the anatomy of an idea? Yeah, I tried to, to a degree, put a put a idea under a microscope and say, well, what, what are the individual components? And here's how I define it. First thing I look at is that there are inputs. And so if you want to be creative, 
what what are the things it's your training and your history and your job experience and such but if you they always say in software engineering if you want to change the outputs you got to change the inputs so sometimes we can tinker with the inputs maybe you read a weird magazine that you've never learned anything about or maybe you get a more diverse set of of people coming in to to contribute and so again to to plus up creativity you can start by plussing up the inputs the next layer of an, an anatomy of an idea i call it a spark so when you say something, oh, I have an idea, it sort of merits criticism. It's sort of like, okay, it's ready for scrutiny because I use the word idea as if it's finished work product. I prefer the word spark, which is the beginning, not an end. So often it's like the spark that leads to the next spark that leads to the next spark that becomes the idea. So think of sparks as these raw tadpoles. They're not fully developed yet. The next part of the idea anatomy, I call it auditions. So let's say you're trying to solve a problem and you came up with 25 sparks. You might say, okay, which of these should we try out? Could we do a very crude, low-cost, low-time test? And so maybe you test four or five of those and then determine which ones merit further exploration. The next phase is refinement. So you might take the three or four that are still remaining and say, okay, can we polish off the edges? Can we sand off anything that's rough? What do we need to do to get it so it's finally ready? And then the last part of an idea anatomy is what I'd call is a slingshot. So it's sort of like, all right, where does it go next? Does it does it become the fastener to the input of the next idea or is it ready for prime time? So again, I just try to take a really sort of scientific view to something that feels squishy of human creativity. And when you dissect it in that manner and you apply it again, technique and rigor at each step of the way, it starts to feel way more like a magic trick, something that can be learned rather than magic itself. Yeah, and you use stories to sort of tell how companies have done that, right? The anatomy of the idea, doing things like, they wouldn't use these terms, right? Auditions and they wouldn't use your terms, but you know, in seeing those and a couple of the stories you call out, um, uh, I, I think uh, one, you know, is a convicted drug dealer who, you know, came up with this amazing idea. So maybe start with that story and we'll work through the three or four that are so great in the book. Well, yeah, this is, so in, in the book, I didn't cover the story of Netflix or Apple because we already know about those stories and we already know they're successful and innovative. So I tried to find really amazing people that we can relate to. It's hard to see ourselves in Elon Musk, but we can see ourselves in, in everyday people doing amazing things. One of the people that I interviewed for the book is a man named Koss Marte. So his first name is C-O-S-S-M-A-R-T-E. And Koss was a drug kingpin. He was in New York City. He was basically like Uber Eats for drugs. He was very innovative, even though it was an illicit uh, operation. At age 20, he was making $2 million a year until 100 federal officers slammed his, you know, raided him, slammed him onto the hood of a car, handcuffed him and, and sent him off to prison. So he was in prison for seven years. And, and when he entered, he was in failing health. He had high blood pressure, high cholesterol. He was and a doctor, a prison doctor told him he's probably not going to outlive his seven year prison sentence. And that was kind of the wake up call that he needed. So he started to exercise, learn about nutrition and fitness. And he, he actually lost 70 pounds in six months. And when the other inmates saw this transformation, they said, wow, can you help us too? So he started developing this, this, this fitness regimen. Of course, there's no fancy equipment in prison. It was mainly using his own body weight. So long story short, he gets out of, school, uh, out of prison. He's paid his debt to society. He wants to be an honest taxpaying citizen. And he was really struggling. I mean, not too many people would hire an ex-con. But he eventually leaned into his creativity. And he realized that when he was in prison, helping others get in shape, he felt like he really mattered, like he had a purpose. So he decided to, to open up a gym. But instead of competing with all the other lookalike gyms, he said, maybe I could be the first gym of its kind. So he launched something called Con Body, which is a prison-themed gym. Their slogan is, do the time. 
So you walk into this like prison vibe gym and you go through like the prison gate and then, then everyone's training in the yard and, and there's no fancy equipment. It's the same exercises that they did in, in prison. And they, they post social media pictures where they, it looks like they're in a lineup. And uh, the, actually the members of the gym are called inmates. They're not called members, but the whole thing is, is really fun and creative. Meanwhile, he now has 10,000 paying customers. And he's streaming his courses online. He's built this massive fitness empire. He's got a best-selling book. He's got CD courses, downloads. He streams live. And, and, and so he, here's a guy who was really short on external resources, but he followed many of the core principles in this book. And he, he didn't, I didn't teach him about that, by the way. He, he did them on his own. But nonetheless, you know, he's a story that I covered in the book. And here's this wildly creative guy that became a massive success, not because he had a trust fund, but because he doubled down on his internal set of creative abilities. Well, and not only that, that it can, innovation can come from anywhere. And sometimes our greatest challenges are our greatest opportunities, right? Which in, in that case, uh, you know, to turn your life around and to create a business um, on something you're really passionate about. And, you know, as you said, it gave purpose and all of those things. Uh, and I think that lends me to the next story, which is a Pakistani couple who created an athletic shoe company. So maybe you could share that story. Sure. So think about trying to go up against Nike or Reebok, or Adidas. I mean, it would be hard to pick a more formidable foe. Now, if you had you know, a massive bankroll and you were backed by Silicon Valley royalty and, and you had 30 Harvard MBAs and all this stuff, it would still be like ridiculously hard. But now imagine that you're a husband and wife in a very low income town in Pakistan. Like the odds are just a zillion to one or whatever. But they said, okay, let's, again, creativity can really become this great equalizer. And what they started thinking of is about, first of all, could we focus on one thing? Instead of trying to be the, the, the shoe for everybody and have all different colors and styles, like, you know, Nike, there's thousands of different shoes. They came up with one shoe, came in one color, and they did one creative twist. And the creative twist was this. They learned that people, most people don't have exactly the same size foot left and right. They could be slightly different. So one of you probably have this. One of your shoes fits slightly different than the other. So here's what they did. They came up. They said, we're going to be, we're not going to have any celebrity endorsers. Our shoes are not going to come in neon colors, but we're going to do one thing different. And that's sell shoes in half sizes, allowing you, a consumer, to buy two different shoes. So here's the way it works, Tiffany. If, if you said, hey, I, I, I want to get a pair of these shoes, you tell them the size you would ordinarily wear. Like in my case, I wear a size eight. So they would send me like a seven and three quarter an eight and an eight and a quarter for both feet. And you just pick whichever two fit the best. You could have a seven and three quarters on your left foot an eight and a quarter on the other foot and send them all the rest of them back. Shipping is free. So they came up with a different angle, quarter size shoes, and you can buy a different size for each foot. And they became in this incredible success story. Like they're actually competing against Nike and Reebok and Adidas with a paltry budget and no celebrity endorsers. But what they had is this, this gift. And, and frankly, this is a, a gift that we all have as human beings. They tapped into this, the, the fact that they are hardwired like us all to be creative. And when they deployed that in a thoughtful way, the results followed. Yeah. And I think there's so many uh, things within that story, right? I often talk about kind of the jobs to be done. Like what, what's the job somebody needs to do? Well, I have two different size feet. And so what, you know, what, it's not going to be comfortable for me. Uh, and so let's solve, you know, a pain point. And What's interesting is those companies they compete against, it's all about scale. Like for them to do that, send three pairs for each foot, which is six shoes, right? Ship them. Someone's going to keep two and ship four back. Like, is that what these big brands want to do? Uh, I even have seen, you know, some saying, well, in our retail establishments, when they're open, right, come in and get your feet perfectly sized, and then we'll make you a custom shoe. 
right? That might be the way that they're, you know, responding to this. But I think that that whole creativity, find a pain, find a need, find a passion, you sort of lend it, it lends itself to a successful story like, like that great uh, couple out of Pakistan. All right. The third one um, is sort of stories from people people know, right? You've got Lady Gaga, you've got Bansky. So maybe you can share some of those stories. Sure. So, you know, just again, orienting people in the first half of the book, it was, it's, it's a lot, it's not boring research, but there's a lot of research. So we look at neuroscience, we look at academic research, we look at business research uh, from, from research organizations. Uh, we really try to talk about why is creativity needed today and how can we best go after it? And part of that is unpacking, like, what are the rituals that we can do? Very simple rituals that, that build skill over time. The back half of the book, I cover the eight core obsessions, which are mindsets, the mindsets of everyday innovators. And they have funny names. Like one of them is uh, uh, don't forget the dinner mint. One of them is use every drop of toothpaste. Uh, but they're basically these things that don't require years of study or, or heavy investment that any one of us can deploy pretty quickly to, to bring innovation into our lives. Um, but as part of all that, you, as you point out, I, I looked at the, the creative habits, the rituals of some not so famous people, but also some very famous ones like Lady Gaga and Banksy. And one of the things that I, I was struck with is how underestimated the process of revisions are in the creative process. And here's, here's what I mean. You know, most people think, hey, I have this idea and I, I come out of the shower before I'm dried off, the idea is ready for prime time. And they don't realize that usually it takes a lot of revisions. An initial idea is important, but they're usually deeply flawed. And only through a lot of elbow grease and polish do those ideas come up ultimately to be worth something. There's one of my favorite little sayings is, what do all great authors have in common? And the answer is lousy first drafts which just, again, reinforces the position that, you know, to, as a habit, that revisionary process, even though it's less sexy, is really important. Often the difference between a great piece of work and a good piece of work is the number of revisions. So anyway, back to Lady Gaga. She did something that I thought was pretty cool. She said that when she creates a song, the whole time period might be two years, but it starts by her just sort of vomiting ideas onto a page for 15 minutes. And then the rest of that time, you know, going from minutes to years is spent in refinement and tweaking and polishing. And, and we don't realize, we think often that it's like idea launches, that's creative. And after that, it's all mindless execution. But the truth is that the creative process goes far beyond the initial spark of an idea. It goes each step of the way through revisions and ultimately through execution. Well, you know, I also think something in there is, a question, which is sometimes people will wait until it's perfect. So I put 15 minutes down on a piece of paper and then it's years of revision. And sometimes it's like, you know, analysis paralysis. It's like, it's never going to be perfect. Like, do you just let it out and then revise from there? Or, or how do you, how do you recommend uh, people handle that? Yeah, I mean, it's different depending on what you're doing. I mean, if you're building a, you know, a skyscraper, you want to make sure that, you know, the fault tolerances are pretty darn smart before you, you put, put, put people's lives at risk. But generally speaking, we tend to lean too far into perfection. Generally speaking, we're better off getting into a mindset of experimentation. So rather than the old way of thinking, I wait around for this perfect idea. I keep it in stealth mode. I build it in the lab. I invest my entire fortune and company and career. And then I bet everything on one idea. That to me feels really irresponsibly risky. I like the notion instead of cultivating lots and lots of ideas and, and being in the habit of, of constantly testing them. And by the way, the optimal number of failed experiments is not zero. If you have zero failed experiments, that means you're not trying hard enough for pushing the creative boundary. Right. So I like the notion of as leaders, we could be trying five, six, seven, eight experiments a week. But again, fixed time, it, it could be like 30 minutes and 20 bucks 
to test it. And if it doesn't work, great, get rid of it. And then when you finally get ones that do work, kind of double down on those and double down on those. So by the time you get to prime time, you actually have already extracted a lot of the risk out of it and you have more creative confidence. But then I still love the notion of phases. So I'd rather you launch something if possible. Again, it doesn't work in a skyscraper, but in most cases, you know, launch it version 1.0 and get real customer feedback and start generating some revenue and make sure it's you're, you're, you're hopefully you're providing real value to, to customers and those around you. And, and in concurrently getting lots of feedback and, and, and don't look at it as final, look at it as a version one. And then version two comes out, which should play, which should render version one obsolete. And then version three renders version two obsolete. So anytime that we can get away from these all or nothing, bet the farm on one idea that has to be perfect mentality and replace it with the mindset of experimentation and phased approaches. To me, it's a way more pragmatic approach to cultivating successful outcomes. Well, so how would you recommend people who might not have innovation as their job day to day, but have ideas and they might work for a company? So not an entrepreneur, don't have their own business, but work for, they're kind of an entrepreneur and they might have an innovative idea, but they work in the confines of a business, you know, that's not theirs. Uh, and also it might not be their remit, right? It might be, I have a really great idea, maybe to improve a process or improve a product, or, you know, I've been talking to customers and I keep hearing the same thing. And so they have a idea, right? And they want to sort of bring it forward. What do you tell entrepreneurs who might be listening? Uh, you know, how's the best way to go about that? Yeah, well, first thing I would say is that I think innovation, and you could call that by different words. You could say, you know, artistry or imagination or creative problem solving. I think it's part of every job. I mean, when you look at the Future of Jobs report, which came out recently, and they talked about what are the most needed job skills in just five years, four of the top five all tied to imagination and creativity. They use different words, but same, same kind of thing. So in other words, I don't think that the quote unquote hard skills of the past, where we just blindly follow the operating instructions, leads us to a point of success. That's not going to get us promoted. That's not going to get us to the next level. So I th again, I would argue that it, it, you know, almost like show me a job title that doesn't require some level of creativity. It, once we recognize that that's sort of the unwritten part of the gig, I think that the notion is that we should, in, as best we can, cultivate as many ideas as we can possibly think of and look for cheap and easy ways to test them. So if you have a process improvement idea, instead of saying to your CEO of 10,000 person company, hey, let's try this with all of our customers tomorrow, say, hey, maybe go to your direct leader. Can we try this with one customer on a Tuesday afternoon? And so again, back to, to breaking down the, the scariness of, of a global change into a prototype or an experiment, most of us have the ability to, to try that. Uh, you don't have to bet the company or, or, or eat up a bunch of, uh, of capital to do so. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and it's great advice because, you know, sometimes these conversations, when I talk to people, like, oh, it's about my pay grade or it's not my job or it's not what I do, but I'm actually really passionate about it. It's just not what I do day to day. And so creating that opportunity um, to say, you know, on Tuesday, we're going to try to do it this way. And if I can prove it out, maybe you go to your first line direct manager and see if it works and then you know keep trying and iterating and if it really has an impact maybe that first line manager can bring it you know further up the food chain and and it, maybe it's adopted but so many great ideas like post it notes and all kinds of other things right have come from unlikely scenarios not r&d labs and not sort of executives so i think it's a great opportunity for everybody no question. You know, I've been reflecting, you know, think about this. We spend most of our professional lives, I would say, in what's called heads down work. And when your head's down, it's transactional. You're getting your job done. You're doing what you were hired to do. All important. I'm not criticizing that at all. But do we need to spend 100% of our time heads down and, and at the expense of being heads up? And when your head's up, you're exploring what's possible. You're noodling. You're, 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 you're pushing your creative boundaries. So here's a thought experiment. I've issued this challenge to many people around the globe. 
what if you gave yourself a 5% 30-day challenge? I said, okay, if I work 40 hours a week, 5% of that is two hours a week. What if for only 30 days, I scheduled two hours a week as if it's an important meeting that can't be changed? And in that time, instead of just cranking out your to-do list, you let your mind wander. You, you try something new. You wonder, are there 13 ways I could imagine doing this particular process better? You doodle, you explore. Anyway, here's I've tried this with thousands of people. And here's what I hear back every single time. First thing, I hear back a 0% drop in productivity. Zero. Magically, 40 hours get smushed into 38 hours. Nobody misses a beat. Right. The next thing I hear back is that the first week I felt like I was being frivolous. I felt like I was cheating on my spouse. Like, oh, it's so irresponsible of me for being like I'm not doing a, a task. But then by the end of it, and this is like 100% of the time, people say the most productive time I spent all week. And many people have now embraced that habit for on, on a permanent basis. So I would just say it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Another myth is that when we say, oh, we want to be creative, that means that people think you're going to be overly risky, irresponsible, drawing on the walls with crayons, all that. Just take a little bit, a small percent of your, of your resources, time, energy, money, and apply it in a creative way. And when you do that with that rigor and discipline, you'll be kind of blown away at how creative you get quickly and more importantly, the results you're able to generate. Excellent. Well, we've got a question actually from uh, one of our viewers. I'm going to post it at the bottom. Uh, Juan says, uh, joining midstream, apologize, but doesn't matter. Great question. How should businesses cultivate a risk tolerant environment for entrepreneurs to feel psychologically safe to experiment on innovative products? Well, Juan, you hit it right on the head, you know, the word, word safe. Turns out that fear, not natural talent, fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. And truthfully, fear and creativity cannot coexist. So if you are a leader that's, that has mixed messages, I want everybody to be innovative, but then someone shows up with a half-baked idea and they're sent to corporate timeout, you, you're just training people to never show up with more ideas. So as leaders, I think the best thing that we can do is, is cultivate rituals and rewards that support the creative process and remove the fear. Here's just a quick example. One of the people that I interviewed in the book runs a nonprofit in the UK. And he has a ritual. Every Friday, they call it F up Fridays. <laughs> and here's, they say the whole word, by the way, I'll be, I'll be PG here today, but F up Fridays go like this. They're, they have a big brown bag lunch for all 50 some people of the company. And they go around person by person. And each person stands up with pride and shares what did they F up that week? And what did they learn from it? And when they get to somebody that didn't F something up that week, they're like, well, why not? What, what are you going to try next week? So, so they built they built like this little cultural rhythm that makes people feel comfortable and safe taking responsible risks. And, and I know on, on the surface, a, a traditional leader might say, gosh, that feels so risky. But I would ask back with great respect, what's the risk of not doing something like that? Irrelevance? Mediocrity? I mean, I'm pretty sure that Oldsmobile and Pan Am Airlines didn't do that. You know, I, I just think it's our responsibility to, as leaders to, to create this environment, a greenhouse for creativity, if you will. Like, how do we create the optimal conditions as leaders to tap into the full brain power of every person on our team, rather than having creativity and innovation relegated to like 2% of your, your workforce? I love that idea. And it's so simple. Like maybe your next team meeting, you know, on a Zoom call, if we're not, you know, physically in person, do that, you know, go around and say, what did you F up this week? And, and what did you, you know, learn from it? I had another uh, entrepreneur, um, you know, CEO come on and say that she created a, an inbox for what are we doing really stupid, but she used other words as well. And so people could email into the inbox of things that we were doing stupid. And it, it, it might be process stuff like, you know, I have to do this before I do that. It's stupid. I don't need to do this. I just need to do that, but I can't do that until I do this. So if we could eliminate that and she it, originally, when they sent out the email, right, they got hundreds of things. But there were like 50 that were really impactful that 
how did we ever end up doing this? Like who made this decision? Because it just, you know, people just didn't keep up with what was happening. So I think if you're going to ask people to do something like that, you know, as a leader, um, you have to make it safe, right? That psychological safety, as Juan said, right? That, that absolutely has to be in place. Uh, make it fun, right? Because then I think people feel um, less uh, inhibited, if you will, but also pay attention to those that don't speak out that maybe they're uncomfortable, right? They're introverts. They're not, they don't really speak out in a room of 50 people. Like that's not their thing. You have to make them feel comfortable. Everybody has to participate, right? Yeah, it's so good. I mean, back to rituals and, and rituals and, and techniques really do drive creative output very quickly. The band Aerosmith, another one that I covered in the book, has a dare to suck meeting where they they, they come and they're challenging each other to bring their craziest ideas. And, and Steven Tyler, the singer said, yeah, most of them kind of suck, but every now and then you get dude look like a lady, you know, and, and love in an elevator. And so, so part of their genius came from their willingness to let their guard down and, and, and let their creativity um, really soar. Uh, another thing that's sort of interesting. So the folks at Ben and Jerry's do something pretty cool. When a flavor is no longer successful anymore, they bury it. But I don't mean metaphorically. They actually have like a graveyard out back of their corporate headquarters and they they give it a business funeral. They give it this send off. They toast it champagne. They give it a lovely eulogy. And it's not a criticism of the past. But by letting go of a previous thing, it makes room for something new. So if there's a system or a process that isn't even working in your company or maybe you want to challenge it, one, one technique might be say something like this. Hey, if this was gone, if we, if we gave this a business funeral, maybe it's something the way that you send a proposal. And we had to start with a blank page. We were forced to. We could no longer rely on the incumbent system. What might that look like? And so when you force yourself to think about, okay, what would it look like if this thing that maybe isn't optimized is no longer even there and you had to start from scratch? That's actually a really powerful way to get the juices flowing and reimagine to rethink what's possible. Absolutely. And we have another comment too from Jeremy who says, uh, as a leader, I would actually start that conversation sharing what I did that failed and learned from it, right? You have to be vulnerable and transparent as a leader. Like even if you come out and it's really effed up <laughs> and it was really a bad mistake. And that even I think goes further, right? Jeremy, you're so exactly right. And, and right, as leaders, we, we need to set the tone. By the way, Trowin, the guy who was telling you about Trowin Restoric, his name of his nonprofit is called Hubbub, um, does exactly that. They're constantly tinkering and trying things. And he's the first to tell you when he failed because he doesn't look at it as a catastrophic error. He doesn't look at, look at it as a scarlet letter. He looks at it as a badge of honor. And when we get past the judgment, it's funny, when, when we see a friend of ours screw something up who tried in earnest, we extend compassion. Yet when we screw something up ourselves, we generally extend no such compassion. So I think that really recognizing that 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 step, setbacks and mistakes and failures are part of the process, that, that's a really important insight. One of the principles that I cover in the book is, I borrowed the phrase from a Zen proverb, but it's one of these core mindsets that innovators embrace. I call it fall seven times, stand eight. And what it is, it's not just dogged persistence. It's a recognition that, that setbacks are learning opportunities, part of the process. And then as you get back after it, you don't just keep doing the same thing. It's always challenging yourself. How can I fuse creativity with resilience? In other words, how can I get back after it with a slightly different approach each time? And over time, it may take a number of different attempts. We're able to unlock or unleash or uncover real innovation. Excellent. And, and, you know, this last question we're going to cover from Andre is how do you democratize innovation when people are too busy? I hear this all the time. Like, I would love to be more creative, but who has the time? And, and I think it's a really valid point because we're all stretched thin and we all have very little uh, extra time. But here's a fun idea. I was thinking about this. I, I'll try it on with you, Tiffany. So what if you did this? What if you spent 30 days and you carved out just a little bit of time, like maybe 15 minutes a day, 
most, at most, a couple, couple, a week, an hour and a half a week. And he said, I'm going to spend that time doing nothing other than focusing on, is there a way that I could create one hour of efficiency for myself per week? So in other words, you're using creativity essentially to create more time. Like your first assignment using creativity is, can I use my creativity to unlock one extra hour a week? And you could do it one minute at a time. Maybe you can brew coffee faster. Maybe you can move the printer three steps closer so you don't have to have as many cycles. Maybe you can adjust your commute by 15 minutes to save commuting time and rush hour or whatever. But I would say that most of us, if we really pushed ourselves, could figure out one hour a week on how to be more efficient. There's tons and tons of time hacks, for example. Okay, so let's just say you do it. Let's say you're successful, and I believe you would be. Now you have one hour a week. Instead of letting that get sucked up into the whirlwind of normal business and life, what if you kept that carved out and, and sacred and precious and said, now I've got my one hour a week, and that's when I'm going to be creative. And so I think, point being, it's sort of meta, I suppose, but we might be able to use our own creativity to solve the time problem, to give ourselves the time that we need to be more creative. Right. And I think there's there that's such great advice, you know, carving out a little bit of time, but also don't give yourself the pressure of, okay, I've got an hour. It's, now it's my hour to innovate, right? Or now it's my hour because that, that sometimes can backfire on you, right? You put so much pressure, you know, maybe it's going for a walk and thinking and reflecting. Maybe it's working out. Maybe it's cooking, whatever it is that gives you sort of space and time um, to reflect and maybe come up with these great ideas, whether it's a you know, a, a lunch hack, whether it's trying something, it's, you know, launching a new product, whatever it might be. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. Once again, everybody go out and grab your copy of Big Little Breakthroughs. You know, what what and how can people stay in touch with you in the work that you're doing uh, so that they can continue to take all your nuggets of wisdom into their day to day? Well, Tiffany, again, I'm very grateful to be with you today and, and, and very much value our, our long-term friendship. Um, just real quickly, uh, you know, reflecting back on, you know, putting this pressure on yourself to come up with a big idea, instead of doing that, instead of saying like, how do I solve this big problem? Start by saying something like, what are the three teeny, tiny, teeny, minuscule ways that I might, you know, attempt to reduce the problem. And my only point is that when we have the pressure to come up with total solutions, it's very overwhelming and scary. When you have the lack of pressure to come up with little teeny bites at it, it's much more liberating. So give that a shot, big little breakthroughs. But the way to find me, to answer your question, um, check out my website, which is just my name, joshlinkner.com. Um, also, I would really encourage you to check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. If you want to buy the book, you can certainly get a copy there. It's in all formats and everything, audio, et cetera. But even if you don't, there's a whole set of tools that are there for the taking for free. There's a, a free assessment that you can take. Uh, there's uh, downloadable worksheets. There's a quick start guide. There's a whole bunch of goodies there. Check it out at biglittlebreakthroughs.com. Excellent. Well, again, Josh, I thank you. I am grateful for your friendship and all the support you've given me over the years we've known each other. I, I'm thrilled that you asked me to endorse your book uh, because I got the early read on it and just absolutely loved it. So as always, Josh, thank you for joining me today on the What's Next podcast uh, and good luck and all the things, goodness for you for the book coming out tomorrow. Thanks so much, Tiffany. I'm gonna hold you to that pizza. I can't wait. I can't wait either. All right, everybody. Thank you so much.